everybody. Uh, my my co-host uh, Melissa Hart and I are 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 thrilled to to welcome Melissa Marr. This is the the night of the two Melissas. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Melissa is a New York Times best-selling author many times over. Um, she has written in the YA, the middle grade, and the adult uh, genres, among many others. She writes graphic novels as well. Um, and she has um, branched out from uh, publishing into self-publishing. She's kind of a hybrid author who um, avails herself of multiple platforms. And I'm sure that's one of the things that we will be discussing Um but for now, I just want to welcome you, Melissa, and uh, just uh, ask you to, to, if you want to introduce yourself to, to those who are who are here, who haven't had the pleasure of taking you as a, one of your classes. So I started out in teaching, and I never meant to pause, but my first book ended up doing everything they say books don't do. It sold in a major deal, international deal, 28 languages within the first week. So I had to make a decision between um, exhausting myself and um, meeting my obligations well. So I paused on teaching for like 12 years. And now I have the pleasure of getting to teach here part time and um, finding ways to make it work, which is a little more possible because my eldest just got her PhD and the next oldest just finished his first book. And so I'm a mommy who writes books and teaches. And what what did your uh, your oldest get her PhD in? Oh, she's an archaeologist. Okay. Uh, she specializes in zooarchaeology and um, just finished. She had an NSF grant for her last bit of her PhD and just got a European Union Research Council grant nice. to research off the coast of South Africa and is affiliated now with the University of Bergen in Norway. So she is moving to Norway in a couple of weeks and wow. will be searching in a cave in South Africa. So <laughs> she's kind of cool. Yeah, that does sound cool. And what about your, is that is that your son who just finished his, his yep. first book? My tell- son uh, finishing his degree in biological conservation and just finished his first science fiction novel and is querying agents as we speak. Wow. And I have a nine-year-old because, you know, I had my midlife crisis and instead of a race car, I got a kid. So <laughs> I'm a mommy. <laughs> a mommy who writes, as, yep. as you said. Pretty much. So um, we're going to talk about many things tonight, but one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, the YA genre. Um, ha- what changes you have seen in the YA genre? Where is the genre situated today? What do what do uh, aspiring writers who wish to to be published in that genre need to know? And then we'll talk about sword fighting. Okay. Um, so one of the really cool things about YA is that it is probably the demographic most insistent on authenticity. And so the big thing I talk about, and I talk about it in everywhere I go, but also in my classes, is that authenticity is the key word you need to remember. And so I think a lot of times in the past, we had people writing outside their wheelhouse. And the result of that is we weren't getting authentic voices. Um, I, for example, am a bisexual woman and finding authors that are representing that in a way that's authentic growing up um, and honestly in a lot of my adult years was really difficult and in recent years we've seen why readers why writers why editors really demand that we are being authentic right so writing what what you know in your heart from your perspective is important but also researching thoroughly and having a diverse cast of characters Um, is also important. And to that end, we've really seen a rise in expert readers. Um, Within YA, I think a lot of times we refer to them as sensitivity readers. But I think that's 
I think that's critical in making sure that we are creating a body of work that reaches into all of these corners of readers that haven't always been served adequately by publishing. So I think the biggest change that I've seen, especially in the last five years, is a lot of newer writers coming in and saying, well, why can't I write this? I've never committed a murder and I can write about murder as if they were the same thing. So the biggest piece of knowledge that I can stress to people that want to move into this industry is being aware of that demand as well as being aware of the importance of sensitivity readers. So that's that's the most important thing I'm seeing. So one, one interesting thing that occurs to me in hearing you say that is, is that authenticity, I mean, that's kind of a, uh, a nebulous word in, in some respects. So just trying to narrow it down a little bit. Um, I think authenticity has kind of like an inner, an inward directed applicability, like you were saying, you know, writing what's true to your experience and true to your heart, but it also has an outward uh, facing uh, aspect where I think you're, you're, if I'm understanding what you said correctly, you're kind of thinking about what are the what are the the, the lives of of those around me, uh, mm-hmm. and especially um, of lives that that I myself may not have a personal experience of, but still wish to uh, acknowledge and include in my work in a way that is respectful and uh, as as true as I can make it. Very much so. I mean, one of my chief examples, um, and I've been very outspoken about this um, when I was originally teaching in literature departments, um, and I really feel like we've made progress, but I'm a rape survivor. That has defined large quantities of my life. Um, it's why I'm an adoptive mother, because my my body was damaged in a way that that was my choice to be a mommy. So when I define myself as a mommy, I'm defining myself as a mommy in part because reaching that required in the one biological pregnancy risking death, right? And so that definition is a nuance to what it means to have rape in a text that isn't always there. And I think we've seen in action film, um, there are some authors who are very guilty of this within the fantasy genre, using rape as a shorthand for character evolution um, and not character evolution in a way that they personally experience, but character evolution in a way that another character experiences it and so it evolves their protagonist. And so I think as we've advanced, we've realized that that's missing something, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're not capturing the nuance of that experience from a protagonist perspective. On the other hand, what I could do is I could have a character separate from me, right, who is not the protagonist, who has experienced this. And in that case, I would have a sensitivity reader um, if I weren't the one writing it. Um, but to be honest, even if I'm the one writing it, so the, co- the graphic novel I just finished for DC, one of the characters is bisexual and the other one is a lesbian. And I still had sensitivity readers go over that text, even though it's from my experience, because we want to be sure that we're we're making sure that all the nuances are respectful, if that makes sense. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yes. Um, and I, I'm going to call upon uh, Melissa Hart here as well, because I think one thing that I see a lot um, in, in student writing um, is, in fact, what you just referred to. I see, I see rape, and not just, not just rapes, but, um, but violence uh, toward, toward characters frequently, but not always women. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, kind of violence that's, that sort of reflects a power imbalance, I guess, is one way you could look at it. But, but it's, it, the way that it's used in the, um, in the plot and in terms of character development is more as a, uh, a kind of a, a, a component of a, of a chemical formula, you know, in order to achieve a desired effect, either a transformation of the character or some twist in the plot. What do you tell those kind of the students who are who are um, uh, for the for the best of reasons uh, and not fully yet in command of their craft? What do you tell students who take that approach? Um, you know, other than don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's always so tricky, and it happens in my thesis classes every term. Um, <clears throat> nobody means to be, I don't believe. Uh, racist or sexist or 
Nobody means to other people in their thesis manuscripts, but it happens. And I certainly did that in my own um, MFA thesis manuscript way back when. I remember I used the word gypsy and my um, my advisor was actually Jacqueline Woodson. And she said, you can't, you can't write that. I had no idea why. It's funny that we're still, um, we, we're still not clear on why we can't use that word, by the way. But anyhow, I am all for sensitivity readers. I frequently encourage my students, even when they're at the thesis one level, to find one and use them. Um, I use them myself for the novel I have coming out in November. I have a main character who has Down syndrome. And even though he's based on my brother, I still had a sensitivity reader and her kid who has Down syndrome vet that manuscript. Um, it is tricky because students get, um, they have a tendency to get very defensive. Um, if you say, I think you want to rethink this, this marginalized character um, and the way you're portraying them. And, and so it's, it's, it, it requires a lot of nuance <laughs> and and kindness to, to help teach that. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to be a good teacher to your to your students, you have to be kind. I mean, writing is a tough enough business <clears throat> as it is, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. Can I say one more thing? Of course. Uh, in one of my classes, I I learned the unfortunate term fridge lit. I don't know if anybody's mm. familiar with that. Do you know what that is, Paul? Yeah, it's like a it's like a superhero. Uh, uh, as my understanding of it, anyway, is it's like it's a superhero. Uh, ter it comes out of like criticism of superhero uh, oh. fiction. Is that? I, I got a completely different take on it. That's oh, great. okay. <laughs> I mean, I know it from a, a book. Uh, by um, Catherine Valente, who's an uh -huh. incredible uh, speculative fiction writer, um, and she wrote a book called The Refrigerator Mono uh, Monologues, which oh. is a, a play on the vagina monologues, and but but concerned with what I what my interpretation of 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 fridge lit is. But you tell me what you're talking about. And oh my gosh, well. My source said that it referred to fiction that starts with the death, usually accompanied by a rape, of a woman. And that is the impetus for the entire novel, which is almost always featuring a male protagonist. So we don't get a complex picture of the woman at all. It's all about him. And it all starts with a female corpse in a refrigerator, you know, because she's mm -hmm. a woman. So that's a totally different interpretation of Fridge well, Lit. It's not really because so many superhero, traditional superhero origin stories begin in a way that's analogous to that. Really? Huh. If I might, one of the issues that I think where we don't address in discussing this is that the role of the people around the rape survivor, those kind of narratives are are not finding space in the market yet. And I think there's I think there's a, a distinct place for that. Um, I know that my perspective was very shaped by the need to survive, but my girlfriend at the time was shaped by a sense of feeling helpless, watching me go down a spiral of drugs and suicidal behavior and other dangerous uh, hobbies that I picked up. Um, and that kind of narrative, those sort of stories. And the same thing with coming out, you know, um, the families of people that are experiencing these life-changing events, those narratives, I think, are also important. But the problem we're finding is that the narrative we're seeing is not, um, it's not respecting the original person's trauma and it, it removes them. And I think that eventually we'll see the pendulum swing back where we can see the stories of people that are coping with a loved one's experiences. But at this point, so many of those experiences were only told from the superhero or you know the fantasy character about to go off on a mission. And it's that, that loss that pivots them into making a change, being a hero. And I think that those sort of stories 
will have a place. But I think that in the meantime, we need to make space for the actual survivor stories in order to have them. Um, that's not a story I personally want to write. And, and that's another question. I know there's there's a lot of um, you have this experience, therefore you have a responsibility to write about it. And they don't agree with that. I don't write about disability. I don't write about being a rape survivor as a rule. It has tangentially touched in one of my books. But as a rule, I don't think that someone that experiences these things should have to. And that's another pressure that we're seeing in the YA demographic in particular, is we're seeing a tendency to say, if you have this um, this topic in your world, you have to write about it. Right. And 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 I guess if you don't have this topic in 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 your world, then you you better not write about it. I mean, that's where sensitivity writers come in. Right. Um, but. Let me let me kind of pivot just a tiny bit because I, I know that we're you know our topic is is YA so I'm I'm curious about the extent to which the the rape and other other forms of violence are uh, are they are they more acceptable now and and by acceptable I mean are publishers likely to to reject a manuscript that would include things like that as they would definitely have done in the past. Or are they now more open to it um, because there's a reader, a demonstrated readership for it? I mean, I don't know that they were rejecting in the past. Looking at Laurie Halsey Anderson's Speak, for example, which just celebrated its 20th anniversary. Um, that was actually the book I used to tell my kids, my now adult kids, that I was a rape survivor because they were reading and they had questions and it was an opening for a conversation. So I think there's always been a place for those books. I think the shift is to having that authenticity is having that sense of authority. And I'll use an example that kind of blew up on Twitter recently. There was an author um, who's a bisexual woman and she was writing a YA book about um, the coming of age as a lesbian experience. And the agent that read her manuscript rejected it because he said that there would be questions of authenticity because she was in a, um, a heterosexual relationship. And so I think we're at the place that there's they're still trying to figure out what's okay for who to write and who not to write. And I think there's a lot of things. But in terms of darkness, YA is YA has been very open to the darkness for quite some time. Um, the only book I had where I touched on rape was in 2008. And I actually show a character, not the rape, but post-rape. And spiraling to the point that she's at a party with corpses on the floor before she hits rock bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, that was fine in 2008. So if that was okay then, it's gotten a lot darker since. Um, dark is okay. So both of you have, have written in the middle grade um, space. And I'd be curious to know, uh, because actually this is, this is a question I've had from students before, and it's not something that I, I have direct experience of. What's the dividing line between middle grade and YA? And you, you mentioned just now how, how much, uh, and you know, 20 years ago, to me, that's, that's like recent, <laughs> you know, because I'm at that age where, where like when I say back in the past, I'm talking about like, you know, the 1970s or something, which is when I was a kid. Um, but the YA space is now is like now more accepting of, of what you were referring to as kind of like darkness um, or the, that side of, of life. Um, what about middle grade? Is that is that is that more accepting? Is is there a stark dividing line between them? So I am I'm trying not to laugh because my middle grade that just came out was um, came out this summer and I don't know, about 10 chapters in. Um, the young, the protagonist, who's I think 11 in the book or 12, her entire family gets slaughtered and she's the only survivor. Um, and then she takes an alchemical potion to sacrifice her emotions in order to become a better assassin. And mm. that, that's middle grade. Um, that so sounds great. <laughs> I'm not really sure that I'm the best judge of what's too far. Um, I think that I come back to... I grew up with fairy tales, 
whereas Cinderella's sister didn't have her slipper pop off amusingly, she sliced off her toes, and the prince noticed that her shoe was filling up with blood. So my sense of what's too dark is perhaps not, um, not the metric by which all things are judged. But that came out from Penguin, and it's received excellent reviews. So I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I think it's 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 from writers like you who are, um, you know, tackling these subjects and and maybe pushing boundaries a little bit each time that that we've, you know, it, Caleb in in our chat just co commented on how much writing has evolved in just in the last 10 years. And I think it's because of, you know, writers by and large are are not satisfied to exist within within you know um spaces that are conveniently uh roped out for them they like to push against the boundaries they like to cut those ropes and try to go into new areas that's been my experience anyway but that's how we know what the rules are is by breaking them um with that book i was talking about because it was acquired by Harper UK and US at the same time, I was literally negotiating with my British and American editor on how many corpses were um, rock bottom, like how many dead bodies were too much. And my sense of what's too much is perhaps um, extreme compared to what my both of my editors thought. So we were literally email back and forth negotiating dead bodies. Uh, <laughs> we also, I mean, that book, every book in that series hit the New York Times. Every book in that series also included bisexual characters. Um, two of the relationships in that series ended in poly relationships, one with two men and a woman, one with two women and a man. And it still hit the New York Times back in 2008 and 2010 when I was being told, you can't pull that off. We will not do that on a main title. But readers bought the books, and so I got away with it. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, rules are meant to be tested. What what do you what do you think is going on now with all of the I mean I you know I've seen book bannings before I've seen um, you know uh, organized um, movements um, against particular authors against particular types of books but never have I seen uh, a kind of a, a concerted effort across many states to actually write these laws into you know into law to 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 make for the legislature to step in with uh, extremely um uh um just just hardcore laws that 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 make it dangerous for teachers for example to to or librarians or libraries to have any of this material it's it's like uh you know, it's a new to me, it's a more pernicious and maybe dangerous form of censorship than we've seen in this country in a long time. What 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 where is that coming from and how are how are publishers? Um, do you feel like publishers are standing up to that appropriately? No, they're not. Um, <laughs> uh, for starters, it makes me think you mentioned the 70s. I, I was born in the 70s, but my my sort of coming of age was in the 80s. And it reminds me of a lot of the rules and restrictions and things we saw against women and we saw against um, being out and being a lesbian. Um, I remember the skinheads. I remember fists to the face for being out and proud. Um, and then things felt better. And I think we had this illusion that things continue progressing. Um, and I believe in my heart of hearts, idealist that I am, that eventually we do progress. We do see change in positive directions, but I think that there is there is a pushback from these conservatives that were opposed to equality across the board that we were seeing happen. And I think that we perhaps got comfortable in the era of Obama, believing that progress had come. We had a black president. We were seeing we were seeing rights that were happening. Gay marriage is okay. And I think a lot of times we perhaps got comfortable. It's exhausting to fight for decades on end. And I think when we got comfortable, we saw things lash back the other way. And you can argue the pendulum swing, but I think that along the way, people have realized that these ideas, these controversial ideas are coming from 
our children are coming from our teens. And so in order to restrict that, restricting the open minded things that they have access to is how we is how we restrict that. So I don't think it's accidental. I do think it's very organized and I don't think publishers know what to do, but I think they're failing us. I think they're yeah. failing librarians and teachers. Well, I mean, you know, not not to get too you know, deeply into politics, but the whole, you know, the, the recent um, laws that have been passed in Florida, you know, that don't the don't say gay bill, the so-called don't say gay bill, um, which was passed by the legislature, signed by the governor. And you could see the the kind of um, uh, cowardly response of of Disney, you know, that probably the the most powerful corporation in Florida or mm-hmm. certainly one of them. Uh, who, who basically, you know, abnegated their any responsibility to their own creators. Um, uh, that was a very uh, disappointing thing to see. But I think I think that's that's just what you were, you know, the sort of thing that you're referring to. They're, Disney is a big publisher. And they're not doing what they need to do in that and and other areas. Well, that's where change starts. You know, we 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 don't. Think about it. We talk about like the national elections. We talk about our Congress. We talk about president. But if we're looking at it on a local level and you get people that are building in power there and it continues to grow. And I think we see it with laws. Um, and and I am very political. I'm very open about the fact that I'm very political. Um, I don't think you can be a rape survivor and a lesbian in this world, um, be a writer in this world and not think about that. You know, and so I think that we have to look at that and I think we have to look at our local areas and see how we can be outspoken. You know, I know there are times it was dangerous to be outspoken um, and and I get that it's scary. I mean, during the Trump era, there were times when I received a level of anti-Semitism that I hadn't experienced in decades. Um, I, I took off my Star of David sometimes when I was walking the dog at night because I had been cornered once in the past couple of years here in my neighborhood in a safe area. So I think we have to think about it, but I think that's why we're writers. I think that's why we're teachers because we wanna see change and we wanna we wanna be there for the kids and other people and make a difference. And dear Lord, I'm a terribly idealistic, so forgive me. <laughs> no, not, a, not, in, not in the least. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad that we can have the, this kind of conversation I think it's an important one to have um, for for us and for our students. Um, I, w- I, w- I do want to kind of switch gears a little bit, though, because I want to get to the sword fighting before we before we throw things open for 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 questions and, and a broader conversation with the students. You know, I just read this uh, interview with uh, Jeff Vandermeer where he was talking about MFA programs. And, and one of the things he said was, um, he, he had been to some uh, M, involved in some MFA programs whose whose when he looked at the students writing, he realized that they could not describe how to, they could not describe a character climbing a ladder. And I, I mean, he just picked that at random as as describing a physical action. Physical action is so important in fiction and it don't get much more physical than a sword fight. Right. And it makes me wonder, like, I have a lot of sword fighting in my in my novels. Um, I was a fencer in college. Um, I fenced um, the foil. Um, I I have my little fencing jacket. I I only not too long ago gave away my my fencing equipment. I think those days are behind me now. I kept I kept this sword, which is a nice Spanish epee. Um, how how do you I, so I want to talk about sword fighting first as just a thing unto itself, because it's a cool thing to do and it's a cool thing to write about. It's it's good to have in your stories. But then I'd like to talk about it a little in a kind of metaphorical way, like Vandermeer was talking about climbing a ladder. Like, l- let's talk about sword fighting the, as, a, as a metaphor for some kind of writerly craft, maybe. So the easy part is that... Um, I think that for me, I draft a lot of my books in script format. And so I'm constantly thinking in terms of um, uh, stage directions, right? So my early drafts of everything I write are script 
a par parenthetical description of what a character looks like um, and stage directions. And I reached a point where I realized like, um, so one of my friends was uh, one of the guys that designed the Marine Corps martial arts program. So Friday night, we crack open a bottle of whiskey and I'd say, okay, find something in this room to kill me with. Mm -hmm. And so we do this sort of scenario and I would get to be the victim and I would get to be the aggressor. And so I learned things like holds and where your body is in space. And then I reached a place where um, I was writing a sword fighting scene. And at the time I was dating a fight choreographer and we decided that if I was going to write sword fighting, I had to feel the motion of it. I had to get a sense of where your body is, where the weapon lands, how it lands, those kind of things, just like you do when you're walking through a room. Like if you look at my characters, they're all short chicks because I am five foot two on a good day. And so <laughs> for me in a kitchen, the only weapons I have are down here on the counter. Right. And so looking at that with a sword and what does it mean we have this illusion i blame conan um <laughs> that love the movies but still swords weigh about a hardback right and if i can carry a hardback and i can whack you with a hardback i can whack you with a sword um and the difference is primarily in your reach right so i like a long sword this is a historical repro reproduction um it's weighted for combat all of my weapons are made by blacksmiths specifically for combat um i've broken a couple fingers and a rib um in in these this is not um stage choreography that i'm talking about it's actually the purpose of i would like to hit you and and make you fall down um <laughs> and even in that like i taught sword for women um here in arizona for about three years we had rules because there's one called a pommel thrust which is taking your pommel and thrusting it at their face we don't do that in real practice because um in the medieval manuscripts where it talks about it it says that it will break at least six teeth. And so I don't do that because even with a mask, it's still dangerous. But what I think is important is understanding your position in relation to another person. And we think about sword fighting and we see it in movies where what they're actually doing is they're aiming for the sword. And that's not how you do. What you're trying to aim is for the injury points. A throat is good. Your sides are good, okay? Um, whacking the top of the head is good. And when you think about some of those medieval manuscripts and where you're whacking, you're trying to get around the openings of armor, right? But you're also trying to get at debilitating points. And so my argument is if you are going to be writing fight sequences, you should be handling something of an equivalent shape, et cetera. Um, I, for instance, in places where I have handguns, I shoot with a revolver. I've been using a revolver since I was too old to be, or too young to be touching a gun. And, um, and I like it. I like it because of the weight. I like the shape of it in my hand. I like the intentionality of moving one round into a chamber and using that round in that chamber. I don't like a clip. My wife, on the other hand, is an army veteran. She prefers a clip because that's what she learned with. And when we're talking about weaponry, what we're really talking about is the character. You're seeing something about the character by their weapon of choice. I like a longsword. I like a longsword because it's brutal. That tells you things about me that maybe don't match my softer voice and my hair. That's useful in a fight. I used mm -hmm. to a biker bar. I put myself through college or graduate school by managing a biker bar. Um, you learn the same thing by that sentence as you do by me talking about a longsword, for instance. In contrast, I have a single-hander. A single-hander is nice. You can do a lot of the same moves, but a single-hander is a shorter blade. In German, it's called a messer, which just means knife, and it's a lot of the same fights, but again, it's brutal and faster. I don't actually like an epee. I don't like a rapier because they require lunging and I have a bad knee. Mm -hmm. So lunging is less reliable for me than something a little bit more bloodthirsty. And so when you're looking at your weapon, you're looking, this is a paperback. Okay. This is all this weighs is a paperback. It's balanced. 
So when I hold it, it should be such, if it's made right, that you're not gonna have the wobble, your point of contact, your point of weight, the way you, the way you hit, the way it moves your body. And a lot of it, when I took my initial sword classes, was horrifying because you get, um, you get people that believe it's in the biceps. It is to a degree. I got bitten by a rattlesnake two and a half years ago, and I couldn't use the sword for almost two years. Wow. I had necrotic tissue, and every time I used it, it really hurt. Um, and so it does involve biceps, but it also is full body. It's your core. You're coiling like a spring. In some ways, it's like boxing in that there are motions when you're moving it, you're punching mm-hmm. the lead hand as much as you're moving it. And so I guess my argument is, if you're gonna do it, you need to think about the way it moves. It's basically a chess game. Sword fighting is just chess with sharp things. What you're doing is each move has a parry and each parry has a move and each one, and you start having sequences of of fight moves, right, that you run. And also, if you know your opponent, you learn their chess moves of preference, right? It's psychological. You test them to see if they're coming at you. You do all of these things, and it's really a mental game. It's just a mental game that you can break them with. Yeah. Uh, Which is, I think, a problem when we see a lot of sword fighting, and that you see someone come in and they just pick up a sword and suddenly they're taking on, um, they're taking on people that have been training every day, which is absolute bull. Um, It doesn't work that way. Um, And so I think it's again much like writing anything else. It's all about authenticity. So. So that's my argument. And my middle grade, you mentioned middle grade, is entirely a young girl who does sword fighting. And I went to my coach, um, Bill Grandy, who's amazing. Virginia Academy of Fencing has the <laughs> largest, largest sword fighting academy ever. Um, and they teach historical sword fighting. And so we blocked out all of my fight scenes in person to make sure that my fights were appropriate Um Sorry, I have a puppy. Um, so I think that's part of it. It's just looking at that realism, looking at that authenticity. Sorry, I get really excited talking about weapons. No, no. I mean, I love hearing about this. You know, I was a I was a chess player before I was a fencer. Um, and so when I started, when I picked up the sword uh, and started learning how to fence, I, I immediately understood um, that I'm I was in a, essentially in a chess game, and and the exact same. Uh, um, strategies and tactics applied. Um, And at that time, I was in college, it was when I was first becoming a writer, seriously. And um, that's when I began to understand that writing too is a a sort of chess game or or sword fight. Um, Your opponent is not necessarily uh, sitting across the table or, or standing at the other end of a, of a lane. Um, maybe you're your opponent. Maybe the book is your opponent. It doesn't really matter, but there is an opponent out there uh, that you're trying to trying to best in some way. That's how I think of it anyway. I, 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 and boxing to me is a very similar, similar sport in that way, in that you're think you're trying to think ahead. You're plotting your uh, attack. Um, and so you can see, that even the very terms themselves are are very similar across all of these seemingly disparate um, these seemingly disparate uh, pursuits. Um, I just popped into my head right now. There's this version of boxing. I, I don't know if you're if either of you is aware of it that combines boxing and chess. It's a uh, it's a round of boxing, and then when the bell goes, they have to sit down in front of a chessboard and they play speed chess That's awesome. and then the bell goes off again the chessboard is picked up put away and another round in the ring fabulous. <laughs> you can you can find clips of that on youtube they're pretty good well, um I, I think the thing that we're looking at and i see questions popping up about resources um my my number one resource for all of you that are asking about weaponry resource um scala gladiatoria 
Uh, his name is Matt Easton. Um, he's a Brit. He talks about the different weapons. He demonstrates he uses the Italian um, version of HEMA, which is historical European martial arts. I do German. Um, I actually have a quote from the earliest written manuscript on my arm um, to remind me because that is my rattlesnake arm and my, my mm. dominant fight arm. Um, but he breaks down the different weapons, the positions, um, how they work against one another. So he's super. Um, and also there is there is a documentary on HEMA. Um, I will send out the link for you guys if you're interested. And of course, anyone's welcome to contact me. Um, it's something about the source. Um, it was made by a French artist called maybe Cecil Cecil. Um, and it debuted on GQ of all places. It's like a two hour documentary. And they talk about the applicability of historical European martial arts in fight, um, in film and in, um, yes, there we go. Back to the source. Look at you, research queen. Um, it's really awesome. And it talks about, um, how it works, why it works, why different films are working. So if you're looking at that stuff, um, watch those. Matt is super also about answering questions. And if you really want to get into it, I have lots of other resources. I, um, as I said, I taught for a couple of years. So these are the resources I gave my students. Um, so, and also, you know, pick up a sword. If you have a group near you, it's called HEMA. They actually have an association. They're all across the world. There are people you can meet with. You might not have a coach, but there are groups of HEMA practitioners that meet in like parks or gyms or the one I was meeting with in uh, southern Arizona was in a warehouse. Um, and you go and you, you know, you hit each other with swords. It's awesome. I mean, if you like that sort of thing. Right. <laughs> and come, on. come on, everybody here loves that sort of thing. I mean, I do. I find it really meditative. Like when I take uh, writing retreats, I actually travel with a sword because I go through, there's a drill called the Myers Cross. And when I'm thinking, I sword drill. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like rumba or tango, except without a partner. Um, and it gets you in a kind of meditative space that to me lets my brain come clear and plot ideas work. So I think it's more than just practical for within the text. I think it's practical um, for the purposes of clearing your brain. Like exercise helps me think at writing retreats. Yeah. So, so let me. Uh, I'm going to ask you one more question about sword fighting, and then I'll, then I'll throw it open for for a discussion for with all of our uh, attendees. How do you take something that is a um, a physical activity that is precise, that's violent, that's fast, that maybe involves um, a lot of different movements. How do you how do you translate that into um, prose that is uh, that readers can follow, that readers can understand, that they respond to emotionally, and that still makes sense in terms of the reality that you're trying to describe. So with HEMA, one of the things that's super easy is like this position, which I can't do because there's a wall behind me, over the shoulder is called Vom Tog, from on high, right? And this one, let's see if I can just crouch down, which is over my head, is called Ox, as in the horns of A. Um, if I can do this. And if you're down here, Flug, which is the plow, right? So when I'm writing about those, what I'm writing about initially to describe it is to describe the position in a way as I'm not saying von Tog. I'm saying a position as if he's striking from on high mm -hmm. or like the horns of an ox. And I think that part of what you're doing is describing the physicality in terms that are analogous to things that your, your predominant reader is going to comprehend. Thing the second is understanding that you have to get into their personality in ways that it's not about a, it's not about the fight. Because a fight, a proper sword fight, takes under two minutes. Um, if it's taking longer, one of them is toying with you, or one of them is inept, or they're both inept. The um, same with shooting someone. You know, I have, <laughs> I have a scene in one of my books where one of my characters shoots someone else, and my editor's primary note was, "You have to slow this down." And I'm like, "Have you ever pulled a trigger? Because you you can't. Like this is the speed at which it works." Um, 
And so it's finding those ways to have that interiority, to have what's going on in the character's mind and heart, how they're feeling about this. You know, for me, if I'm fighting, we're going to talk about the fact that I know, for instance, that this person that I'm fighting has a bum knee. So I'm going to aim for the knee if that tells you something about my ethics. Um, there's actually one, there's a strike in HEMA called a Mordhal, which is a murder strike. And if I were to use that, it would tell you something about me. Um, if you're fighting me, you're going to want to attack my rattlesnake um, spot because there's still a divot in my arm where the skin was necrotic and gone. So when you're looking at it, you're using the fight in a way that's not necessarily just about the physical motions. And again, with those, I think you need to represent them in ways that are analogous to things people get, but also what it tells you about the world or to talk about what it says in um about the personality. If I'm ethical, I'm not going to go for their bad knee. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other thing that I found really useful in writing uh, fight scenes is I use less proper nouns for the for the characters in order to allow it to be immersive. And I use more white space and I paragraph very freely. Mm. If I'm writing something setting wise, they are blockier paragraphs with less white space. And if I'm writing a duel, I'm going to have less uh, less black on the page because we're going to have the uh, um, the immediacy. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. It, it it makes perfect sense. I mean, and that's so interesting. It, it's like, you know, the, that's an aspect of writing craft that that we don't teach enough. Honestly, it, the the negative space on the page, the relationship between white space on the page and type on the page. Um, I think that has incredible uh emotional effects it has effects on the pacing of your of your writing um that would be a great topic for for a future wireside chat my um my graduate thesis was in narrative theory so i think a lot about how we're interacting with you refer to them as the opponent um i refer to them as the patsy um i am basically trying to manipulate and con them into falling into my world and my story yeah so my entire agenda is about how do I manipulate this person via visual cues, um, different kind of textual cues, different uh, analogies, et cetera. Um, so that's what I think about. All right, we've got we've got about 10 minutes left. So now I'm gonna throw open our, our chat. Everybody, uh, if you have a question, you can type it in the chat or you can just turn your mic on and your camera on and and join us that way. And for anyone leaving early, thank you for tolerating my hand waving and excitement. And I think there are probably also some questions here through the uh, through the chat that we could pick out. Yeah, there is one that I think is worth um, worth discussing. Brianna says. So are you saying I can't write about something that I haven't experienced? Well, um, I think it depends on what that thing is. I think there are things that, yes, we do leave to the people who have, we make space for them in the marketplace for people that have that authentic experience. It doesn't mean there, that those things can't be in the frame, but I don't know that writing a protagonist that is not one that you can relate to allows for the kind of creation of authenticity that to be blunt publishers are seeking. Um, I think everyone has lived experiences that are fascinating. And I think if we look to those, I think we all have things worthwhile to write. But I also think that there are some experiences, rather large traumatic ones or perspectives that are unique that are harder to write. Yeah, I mean, I, I often have or I have now come around to the to the to the point of of asking myself at moments like that, is this a story that belongs to me? Is this an experience that belongs to me? Do I have the right, the obligation to tell it or or do I is it is it just one of the many, many ideas that I have where I, that I can put aside, you know, and work on something that is authentic to me? Um, and when I was a younger writer, I felt like, no, I can say whatever the hell I want. I can write about everything because I because it's free speech. Now, in my in my dotage, I, I feel more like, um, you know what? I've got 
I've got limited amount of time. I've got so many stories I want to tell. This isn't mine. It, maybe it's a great idea, but it's not my story. So I'm going to put it aside and let somebody else tell that story or tell their own story, whatever it may be. Well, and one of the things that's fascinating about that from the perspective of thinking about the marketplace, because to be honest, I do think about the marketplace. The stories where I am at my absolute most authentic are the stories that do the best, right? So my Wicked Lovely is at core about a girl who wants to get the hell out of Dodge. She doesn't like where she lives. She's miserable. She just wants to be happy and free of this affliction. And that authenticity was what readers responded to, right? Because it was something that they understood, not the fairy part, but the wanting to have control, wanting to have the freedom. And the question comes down to, for me, is there an authentic experience I can hang that around as the center of my story, if that makes sense? I think if that makes sense is what they're gonna put on my gravy stone because that's my <laughs> I saw a question pop up, but I can't read that fast. I, I, I'm going to read this one question because this is another sword fighting question from Eric. Right. He says, if you have a story that has multiple characters in the fight, should the focus be on just one to keep confusion from the reader's perspective? Um, well, I write from each chapter is from an individual point of view. So I don't know what you're feeling. If you and Melissa are fighting and I'm fighting the wife over there, I don't know what's in your head. I don't know what you're thinking about Melissa. I don't know if Melissa's aiming for your glasses. I don't know what's going on because I'm not in your point of view. So if I'm writing the scene, I'm gonna write from here because I'm thinking about my fight. Also, when you're fighting, your adrenaline, like if you think I'm talking fast now, you should see me when I am fighting. <laughs> I am, afterwards, I will physically shake because you get such a boost that I'm not seeing anything beyond, this is the weapon, they're literally trying to kill me. So what I'm looking at is my perimeter, um, if that makes sense. Again. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and Eric, your your question is kind of a, I mean, it's it's a point of view question, really, because that's 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 what your chosen point of view is going to be. It, if you're writing from the omniscient point of view and you're trying to write a sword fight, even there, I feel like you're going to be, um, it, it will be challenging to dip into a number of different uh, um, different um, characters' heads in the midst of a melee, for example, without confusing the reader. Um, you don't want to confuse the reader, I don't think. Go ahead. What you can do is if you're down or you've been like, so I did a whole class on fighting multiple opponents at once. And so once I'm done with one, I'm shifting. And if I don't have an attacker, I'm surveying the other fights. And so it enables you to do sort of like a panorama scan in order to see the other fights to see where your efforts are most advantageous. Right. Yeah. And, and you also have, um, you know, narrative distance can be your friend here, too, because if you're in the middle of a of a of a fight that has a lot of different people uh, engaged, you can always pull your narrative uh, focus way, way back and just kind of look at everything as a whole and describe what's going on. You don't necessarily have to be deep inside a character's head at that point. Um, and even if you're writing in first person, there are there are gradations of. Uh, of, of narrative distance that are available to you in order to describe any action or or scene, I think. Um, so that might be a, uh, that might be a an area in which that comes into play. And thinking sensor sensorily about fights is also really useful in terms of um, like when I'm fighting, I'm going to have the sense of honestly, people smell bad when they're fighting because we sweat. Um, you're going to hear different things. You're going to have a sense of rattling from the jarring. You're going to have a sense of different um, sensory details that are going to also mean that you don't need to describe the play-by-play -play because you can give that sense of overwhelming. I mean, it's easy to talk about blood, but we think about, honestly, there's sweat. There's the sense of the dirt when you're fighting. That fine dirt, like I fought outside in Arizona, terrible idea because there's the fine dust because it's so dry here so you get the dust you get cactus needles also sucks like thinking about your environment is also another way to extend your fight sequence longer yeah yeah and the, these are all i, I mean the, all all of the, the advice that we're giving here is applicable not only to fights it's applicable to every scene in a novel every scene in a novel is a fight <laughs> in in a certain way um that's that's one of the realizations that 
that came to me that when I was younger that helped me improve as a writer. Another one sort of similar is that every scene in a novel takes place in a room. It doesn't matter if it's on a spaceship. It doesn't matter if it's on it by a mountain stream. It's a room that you have created for yourself filled with certain things and your characters are in a uh, physical relationship with each other and with everything in that room. And that, that's so important to keep in mind when you're doing when you're writing a sword fight or a dinner party <laughs> or anything like that. Yeah, but with swords, I also would suggest if you guys are trying to do it, think about your your muscle ache. OK, so take a hardback and hold your arms in ox position over your head. OK, you see a lot of times fighters in these positions, they can't hold them very long. So they're transitioning between positions. Right. Um, and so if you do that with an actual book, it'll give you a sense of the muscle movements that you're exerting and the balance is all wrong. And obviously the reach is wrong. But try that. Also try thinking about it in terms of you've got about 90 seconds. Set your timer and do this thing for 90 seconds. OK. Thinking about footwork, one of the biggest mistakes people make when writing fight sequences is they're not they're not showing it full body. Each motion of a sword is tied to your foot. Like if my foot is on the wrong side with the blade, it's not going to work the same because my angle and reach is wrong. What is your opponent's weapon? I've used a poleaxe, which, by the way, is ludicrous when you're five foot two. Um, <laughs> so the reach on a poleaxe is great, but I can only swing it about three times before I'm... <sighs> Whereas a messer and a double hander, a long sword, you're going to have a different reach, but I can hold them longer. Mm -hmm. So when you're arming your characters, thinking about all these sorts of things um, is really useful. And I, I think the, uh, the other kind of craft tip that, that comes out of that is when you're, when you're thinking about action scenes in your, in your novels, um, get up, get up from your chair, get mm -hmm. up from your desk and, um, try to inhabit the physicality of, of what's taking place to the best of your ability. Um, you know, uh, Dickens used to, used to jump up from his chair and rush over to the mirror and, and make, you know, the horrendous mm -hmm. facial contortions in order to better visualize what his characters were doing. Then he would run back to his desk and scribble it all, all down. And his, uh, his daughter, um, you know, in her memoir of her father describes him doing this for hours. Um, so he but that's what he was doing. He was inhabiting the try doing his best to inhabit the physicality of the scenes and the physicality of his characters. So they weren't all up here. Physicality is super important. And also, if you want to do some of the sword stuff, I have a book that I can send Paul the name of to send out to you or you can just contact me. I'm super accessible. Um, but also go to like your Home Depot hardware store, get um, one of those broom handles that doesn't have a broom at the end or you can get one with a broom and cut it off and get the measurements for the kind of sword you want. So this is about 33 inches, right? It's about two pounds. So if I'm going to use this, when I had students that weren't sure they were going to commit and didn't want to drop 300 bucks on a sword, um, what we did is we went and we got a bunch of broomsticks. Um, mm. And you can mm. also Shanae, which are like 20 bucks on um, Amazon. We start with those in the classes I taught. Um, I taught a group of like 300 kids at once. Terrible idea. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> but they all had bamboo swords. And it gives you a sense of your body position. And this book that I will send you the title of, um, actually has uh, photographs and illustrations to show um, how to move for each of the positions. It breaks it down illustration by illustration, um, akin to how the medieval manuscripts were. So. And, and by the way, you can you can um, find those medieval manuscripts, the very early fencing guides and, and the like uh, online. Um, okay. And they're there. They've all been scanned and they're they're quite interesting. Yes. Yes, they are. And then you can tattoo them on your body. <laughs> Just take the next step. Um, all right, everybody. I think that's going to be it for tonight. I want to thank our guest, Melissa Marr. Uh, Melissa, do you have anything coming out in the in the near future that we should know about? You ask hard questions. Uh, <laughs> I should know this. Um, I have a book um, this June, which is a book of photography of wild horses. Oh, nice. I didn't mean to do that, but my editor saw a bunch of my photographs and asked who the photographer was 
so she could buy them and they were mine. Oh. <laughs> I accidentally have a book of photography. Um, that's this year. Next year, I have a picture book about a chicken with two two gay mommies. Um, I have another middle grade with a dragon and um, my DC comic, um, which, you know, I get to blow shit up, which is really awesome. And, and we didn't even get into the comic book stuff, so we'll, we'll, we'll have to have you back and we'll do that next time. Comics are awesome, y'all. <laughs> and, oh, no, we lost Melissa. Well, oh, there, I can't tell if, she, if I, I wanted to put a plug in there for, for Melissa Hart's new book as well, which is, um, I'm drawing a blank on the title. It's, uh, hold on one second and I will tell you what it is. It is called Daisy Woodworm Changes the World. And it's available right now for pre-order at Amazon and other places, and I'm I'm trying my best to like uh, match Melissa's incredible ability to like uh, find and post resources on the fly. Uh, I'm I'm not nearly as good as her, but anyway, there you have it. Um, and with that, uh, we will end our our uh, wireside chat for, for the night. And thank you so much again, Melissa. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for attending.